1 Samuel 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gilbeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah." And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. 
And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Let's pray. We are new creations in Christ because of your word. And now we have heard your word. And as we consider it and meditate upon it, Try to understand it. Speak to us, Father, more through your word. All of the distractions and anxieties and whatever else is going on in our lives right now, Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to lay those things aside. That we'd be naked before your word. And that in that we would be refreshed, renewed, and known how deeply you love us, your sons and your daughters. I pray you would do these great miracles in our midst today. In Christ's name, amen. So last week we were in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and there we saw David officially become an enemy of the state. Saul had essentially issued a death warrant against him. Saul is the hunter, and David is the hunted, and he is now on the run. In previous chapters that we have looked at, we have seen David portrayed in a not-so-great light. He lied and uh, ends justify the means kind of mentality. And it's not a very flattering picture of David, and it's, these are not the kind of attributes you would want your king to have. In chapter 23, which Andrew has just read for us, we see things begin to pivot for David. He is maturing, and he is growing, and he is becoming what God has called him to be. He's becoming what God wants Israel's king to be. You know, I, I see in that something that I'm grateful for. Thank God that David needed a process of maturing. You know, he, he wasn't like just a Mary Jane. He wasn't perfect all of a sudden. Or Mary Sue, sorry. Um, I'm grateful for that process because I know I need a process of maturing and growth. I'm sure you need a process of maturing and growth because none of us are perfect, and David is not perfect. So it's good to see that. Well, today, again, as we look at chapter 23, we're going to see David begin to embody God's plan for Israel's king. And as we see this incredible story, this very dramatic story, we're going to pull out implications for our life today. And there are many. I am really just going to be touching on a few. Now, this whole time in David's life... There's a lot going on, there's a lot of places that he's visiting, and it's hard to keep track of all of it, so I'm going to take a brief moment, and I'm just going to trace his movements while he's on the run. I wish I had a map accompanying this right now, but you'll just have to somehow imagine that. This is not the map. 
So David's on the run. Remember, he's got this small, loyal band following him, band of soldiers. And last week, we saw the first place that he runs to is the tabernacle located in Nob. And he goes there to receive guidance from the Lord at the tabernacle. He gets provisions, including Goliath's sword, and then he runs away from there because he's only about five miles away from Gibeah, the capital city. He runs from there, more than 20 miles away, to Gath, the Philistine city. But very quickly, they are kicked out of Philistine territory, and so David and his men just flee into the wilderness, sort of south and east of Gath, into the the desolate, rocky landscape. And while he's there, people are hearing about David and what's going on in the palace, that David is no longer welcome in the court, that a death warrant has been issued, and there's a lot of Israelites who have been disaffected by Saul, and they begin making their way to David. They go and they find him in the, the Judean wilderness. His numbers swell to 400 soldiers, as well as a number of others who are with him. And so David, now hiding in the wilderness as these people stream into him, he's, he's now in command of a small army. But as you can imagine, growing numbers make you a lot more conspicuous, and so they have to move on. They go from there, which is still Israelite land, they go down into Moabite territory, really on the other side of the Dead Sea. This is the land of his great-grandmother, Ruth. And while he is in these Moabite lands, David places his father and mother in like protective custody. He gives them to the Moabites so that they will not be used as leverage against him and that they will not be harmed. But while he's there in Moab, God sends a prophet, Gad. And this prophet says to David, go back, go back to Israel, go back to Judah, which David promptly does. He leaves Moab, comes back across from the Dead Sea, and he hides in, the, in a Judean forest, the forest of Hereth. And while he's there in that forest, David receives word that the Philistines are raiding one of the cities of Judah. And you'll hear me pronounce something a little bit different than Andrew, but that's the beauty of these ancient words. You can just kind of guess at them. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are robbing the threshing floors. I did try to look that up from a Hebrew scholar. But maybe you found one better than the one I found. Probably. So anyway, the Philistines are there in Kyla. They're robbing the, f- the threshing floors. And this means that it's, that it's late summer, for the harvest is on the threshing floor. It's been brought in and it's being processed now. And so in other words, the Philistines are stealing the food from Kyla, which is the, the Israelites' means of survival, of course. Now remember, the Philistines control the the lowlands, the plains that border the Mediterranean Sea. And this is the most abundant part, agriculturally, of the promised land. So the Philistines, essentially, they're killing Judeans, people from Judah, and they are taking what they do not need. They don't need this food. David receives news of this raid, and there's an implication that we immediately are given. It's it's important for the entire chapter David has this intelligence network, right? He's receiving these reports. He's got these these spies out there, 
And this is just as Saul has his intelligence network. They both have their scouts, their spies, their covert operations. And this is how David is receiving news of the, the Philistine raid against Kilah. And so he hears this. The Philistines are killing his brothers and sisters. And they are taking, they're stealing what they do not need. And you can imagine how infuriating this must have been for David. But David does not act out of that emotion. He doesn't immediately spring into action. In fact, the first thing he does, like a wise king, is inquire of the Lord. Verse 2, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Did you see that incredibly significant shift that just happened? This is the very first recorded time where David speaks to Yahweh, and Yahweh speaks back. There is no intermediary here. There is no prophet or priest. It is purely David and Yahweh. In fact, even here in this very first conversation, David is acting as a mediator. If David asks if he should go attack the Philistines, God answers positively, go attack. But David's soldiers are afraid. And for good reason, they're already in danger from Saul's army. How much more danger are they going to be in if they go and kick this Philistine hornet nest? So mediating for his fearful troops, David inquires of the Lord a second time. He comes to God again. And for a second time, the Lord answers positively. But this time, it's not just go and attack. This time it comes with an assurance. Not only should they attack, but God promises to give the Philistines into their hand. And see how open-ended that promise is. The Philistines, not just the ones raiding Kyla, it would seem. He's going to give the Philistines into your hand. And faith understood what God was saying. Under David's leadership, God would give the Philistines into their hand. Right? That's why they were not afraid of all of the Philistines after they attacked the ones in Kyla. So they've, they've got this promise now from Yahweh that Yahweh would deliver the Philistines into their hand. They've got the promise, and now David's men march on Kyla in faith because, do you know what? Faith must become action. It must lead to obedience. And look what happens when they obey. Verse 5. And David and his men went to Kyla and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kyla. David's army acts in faith, attacks the Philistine raiders, and just as God has promised, the Philistines are defeated, Kyla is delivered, and David is her savior. David is the savior. Where is Saul? Why wasn't Saul the one fighting this battle? He's the king of Israel, and this was his purpose, to fight the Philistines. We saw God say this in 1 Samuel 9, 16. God said to 
Israel, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, this is Saul, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So it's like his express purpose to fight the Philistines, to save Israel from the Philistines. But he's entirely absent here in chapter 23 in terms of fighting the Philistines. You see, just as Saul has rejected the word of the Lord earlier on in 1 Samuel, now he is rejecting the purpose of the Lord. David's deliverance of Kilah once again affirms that David is the true king of Israel. He's fulfilling the kingly purpose. David is. He's God's man, and he's already demonstrating his commitment to obey the Lord, even if it comes at great cost himself, because he had nothing to gain by attacking the Philistines. Just more trouble. But he's motivated because he understands his calling. His relationship with the Lord has just been affirmed in an incredibly powerful way. And he believes what God has said. He trusts in the Lord that the Philistines will be delivered. So he goes and he does. He hears, receives it by faith, and he obeys. What's your calling? Do you have a dynamic relationship with the Lord? Do you believe God enough to obey Him, even if it comes at a cost? If you don't know your calling, and if you don't know how to obey, then I want you to listen to these words from the king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's your calling. There is one mediator between God and man. Christ Jesus, our King, and we, brothers and sisters, are his fearful soldiers. But Jesus assures us that he will be with us always to the end of the age, so much longer than your life, but it is your life. And he promises that the strongholds of the enemy will fall before us, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, his church. He promises this in Matthew 16, 8. So do not sit merely in your Sunday palace and apathetically let the forces of darkness kill, steal, and destroy. For people are dying. And, people, and they are being stolen from. And we are the ambassadors of Christ. And we are his soldiers. And so we must join our king and make disciples. If we follow him, he will show us just how great and so much bigger than ourselves is his salvation. Jesus is our mediator and our savior. And David, who prefigures Jesus, mediated for his soldiers, and he was savior of, of Kilah. You see that David, 
here in chapter 23, David is becoming a priestly king. Look at verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Kilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Remember Ahimelech from last week's sermon? He was a tabernacle priest. He aided David. 84 other tabernacle priests, and then he kills all the inhabitants of Nob. Abiathar was Ahimelech's only surviving son, and he was one of the last remaining tabernacle priests. And because he's loyal to David, he's a major target for Saul. Saul wants this guy dead. Chapter 22, back in chapter 22, it details how Abiathar fled to David for protection. He couldn't be anywhere near Saul. He flees to David for protection, and David agrees to keep him safe, to protect him. Now here in chapter 23, we find out that Abiathar came to David shortly after David had conquered Kilah, rescued Kilah. And we learned that he came with an ephod in his hand. Now an ephod is a, is a garment worn by a priest, a sleeveless robe, a priestly robe. And since Abiathar is one of the last remaining tabernacle priests, this is likely one of the last Remaining tabernacle ephods, tabernacle robes. Do you remember what a robe signifies in First and Second Samuel? We saw this symbolism before. Robes become a symbol for the kingdom. Like when Jonathan gave his robe to David, it was a symbol that he was transferring his right to the throne over to David. And now comes this priestly robe. Coming to David, symbolizing that the priesthood is with David. It's been taken from Saul and being given to David. It's like a kingdom and a priesthood are being united. This was Israel's purpose to be a kingdom of priests. For God spoke to Israel at Sinai. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to, make, to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, and under David, the kingdom and the priesthood were uniting. We see this as David mediates before the Lord as he leads like a true king of Israel. As he receives this ephod, he truly is becoming a priestly king. I hope that this immediately makes you think of Christ, who is the great high priest, who is our eternal king, better than David ever could. With Israel, Christ makes us, his church, into a kingdom of priests, and that commission given to Israel is now a promise given to the church. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Embedded in that is the great commission. Do you see it? That we would proclaim the excellencies 
of him who called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And I hope you can see how profoundly David is prefiguring Jesus. Verse 7, Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Kilah, to besiege David and his men. So we see a shift in perspective, now to Saul's perspective, away from David. And it's his turn to receive an intelligence report. Saul finally has a bead on David's location. But there is a powerful irony in Saul's words. An irony that's meant to show us Saul's absolute folly and lostness. Saul says, God has given David into my hand. Really? God hasn't given anything to you, Saul. Certainly not David. Of this statement, commentator David Firth writes, Unlike David, Saul is solely dependent upon human information. He may speak of God, but has no knowledge from God. Reminds me very much of something in Romans, of having a zeal for God, but no knowledge of him. And Saul, he's so blind. He has no ability to recognize that the priesthood is now with David, that David is the one fulfilling the kingly purpose, that Yahweh is clearly with David. He cannot see it. And additionally, there is no joy on Saul's behalf that David has just rescued Kyla from the Philistines. Shouldn't he rejoice? All Saul can see is this possibility of annihilating the Davidic threat. He's blind with rage. And so he musters the full force of the Israelite army to march on Kyla. Verse 9, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. David receives another intelligence report. Apparently he has spies who are near to Saul because he knows what Saul is plotting. Like nothing has happened yet. He just knows of Saul's schemes to harm him. And as solid as that intelligence is, Before David acts upon it, again, before action, he prays. Because David understands that more than strategy and more than human counsel and more than intelligence reports, the will and the wisdom of Yahweh is what he needs most. Is it not what we need most? So once more, with ephod now in hand, David goes directly to the Lord and he asks two questions. First, will the men of Kilah betray him? 
And secondly, will Saul attack? God only answers the second question. Why do you think that is? Why not answer both questions? It's as if God wants David to engage further, to press in, to ask again, to not give up. It's like God is training David. You don't always get what you want the first time. So press in. Trust in this relationship. And he does. David asks again, Will the men of Kyla betray me? The divine answer is yes. How strange. Why would they betray him? The Bible doesn't tell us. They betray their Savior. Does it remind you of someone? Another foreshadowing of the coming king in the city that he came to save, that that city would betray him? And here we see such a contrast between David and Saul. David speaks to God like a friend. He even receives an intelligence report straight from heaven. Saul presumes to know God, entirely misses the divine will. Look at verse 13. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kyla, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kyla, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him, in every, sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So we've moved down into the wilderness. And notice... The people do not stop coming to David, despite the increased risk. David's numbers have gone now from 400 to 600. No doubt there are men of Kyla in his ranks at this point. The army marches double-quick, out of Kyla, heading south into the desolate wilderness of Ziph, and this game of cat and mouse begins between Saul and David. And every day Saul hunts, and every day God delivers David from Saul's hand. And in fact, it's the only reason David is able to evade Saul is because God is the one delivering him. Because you see, it's not impossible to find David. There are these people streaming into him, and Jonathan finds David. Look at verse 16. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. You ever had one of those dreams where you're being chased? And you run and you run and you run and you just cannot get away and it's terrifying? Usually you wake up just before you're killed. This is David's living nightmare. The army of Israel, under Saul's command, would dwarf his 600 men. And if Saul is caught, if Saul catches up to them, there is no mercy. David will be killed. There was much to fear. It's fear we have likely never known in our lives. 
And then Jonathan comes. Jonathan, the son of Saul, who is deeply loyal to David. And how powerful is his brotherly love for David. Jonathan essentially risks everything to covertly visit his friend. He does it for no gain unto himself. There's no benefit. I mean, if if Jonathan's caught, he's dead. His father's already tried to kill him. And see how in verse 16, it tells us that Jonathan went to strengthen David. In, In other words, Jonathan risked his life purely to encourage his friend. Isn't that amazing? And Jonathan calms David's fears with this twofold encouragement. First, he encouraged David by assuring him that Saul would not find him. His not much, doesn't seem like he respects his dad very much. Saul's not going to find you. And then secondly, he affirms that David will be king. It's sure. God has spoken it. You will be king, David. Remember, Jonathan's the technical heir to Israel's throne, but he understands God's plan, and he humbly renounces his rights to the throne. David would be king, which happened in chapter 8, that symbolic transfer with the robe. It's now becoming explicit. The kingdom is David's. David will be king. And Jonathan, Jonathan will be at his right hand, a second in command. He's not looking for position. No, he could have kept the kingship if he wanted that. He wants to be with his friend. Jonathan also says something rather surprising in verse 17. Saul, my father, also knows this. Saul knows that God wants David to be king. He knows it. And yet Saul clings to his reputation and he can't let go of his identity of self-importance. He knows it and yet he cannot admit it to himself. Jonathan, so much wiser than his father, can see all of this. Do you know this reality? Like there's a truth, you just can't admit it to yourself. You You can't live it. There's a lot, a lot of people who sit in church pews like this or seats. Even more than David, God has anointed Jesus to be king of all kings, to be your king, creation around us. I wonder if you cannot admit it to yourself. You cling to your identity. You cling to your hopes and your dreams and you cling to your reputation. You cling even to your fears. You chase what you cannot find. If that's you, then you are actively working against Yahweh. You are actively working against the true king and no one stops the plans of the Almighty. It's my prayer that you truly do bow your knee, even today. So Jonathan encourages David. David is strengthened. Because good friends cannot speak promises enough to one another, they make covenant again. They covenant over their future, and then Jonathan leaves, and he goes back to Gibeah, back to where Saul is. And this is the last time 
that David will see Jonathan. At least as far as the Bible records. How good is Jonathan's last moment with David, his friend, that he spent it encouraging him in the Lord. When it's my day of parting, I hope I have encouraged you in the Lord. Later, another time of discouragement for David, and Jonathan's no longer around at this point. David must learn how to do this alone. In 1 Samuel 36, we read, 30, verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul. But David strengthened himself, and the Lord his God. Jonathan will die fighting the Philistines, but with his life, he helped to strengthen his friend, David. And indeed, David does become strong in the Lord. Jonathan did this at just the right time, too, for David, because there was another treachery that was just about to happen. We see it unfold, starting in verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us? And they sort of close in on his location. And then they say, O king, according to our according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him to the king's hand. Surrender him. They're going to betray David. Just give him up. And the Ziphites are people of Judah. Again, people from David's own tribe. And how striking that for a second time, two communities of Judeans were prepared to betray David. But unlike Kyla, the people of Ziph actually carry out their betrayal. They do it. And danger for David only seems to be increasing. He's persecuted everywhere he goes now. Even in the desolate wilderness, he faces betrayal and persecution. Just as the closer Jesus came to his throne, the more his persecutions intensified. And it's remarkable that in verse 21, Saul again presumes the Lord's favor. And he proclaims a, a blessing over the Ziphite traitors. God bless you, you traitors. But God is neither speaking to nor guiding Saul. The only guidance that Saul receives is from the mouths of these treacherous men. And again, we see Saul's determination. Wherever David is hiding, he will search him out. He will sift the masses of Judah in order to find David, in order to kill David. His sole ambition, his only focus is to kill David. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, in the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. So David continues to flee south and east, starts to traverse the rocky landscape, and gradually heads closer and closer towards the Dead Sea. And David and Saul, they're both hearing reports of the other's location, making tactical movements to evade or to capture, hunter and hunted. Eventually, Saul is right on top of David, about to close in on him. 
He's cut off David's maneuverability. Escape looks impossible. Was Jonathan wrong? Is Saul, has Saul found David? Surely, surely, David would have been captured and killed had not Yahweh intervened. In verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. How awesome that God shakes Saul off of David, off of his hunt, with a Philistine attack. Now, considering Saul's passivity over the raid at Kilah, this must have been a much more serious invasion to turn the attention of Israel and the entire army. Saul immediately leaves to fight the Philistines. At least David and Saul are unified. Unified, they need to deal with this Philistine threat. For David, it was a calling, a kingly calling given by God. For Saul, for Saul, it's a matter of pragmatic necessity. Because if the Philistines went unchallenged, then what kingdom would he have to rule? How true it is, as verse 14 says, God did not give David into Saul's hand. The Philistine attack was from the hand of God in order to protect David, and God rescues his king in the most unexpected way. On the verge of death, David is given life. And he moves from the place of almost capture, called the Rock of Escape, and he takes up residence in the cliffs and caves lining the Dead Sea. Remember Lot, who once found refuge in a similar place? Throughout this whole narrative, as I have said, David is beginning to embody what the king is to be, the king of Israel. He's defeating the Philistines, He's mediating for the people, and he is entirely oriented by his covenantal relationship with Yahweh. There is no doubt that David is king. He is the greatest king that Israel would ever have till the coming king. Turn over to Psalm 54. Psalm 54. In a time of great danger, this speaks so much about who this king is. David's at the verge of death, the kind of fear that could cripple a person. Incredibly dark time. Look at what this heading says above Psalm 54. To the choir master, master with the stringed instruments, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So, I'm going to guess that David writes this while he's waiting for Saul's army to attack, to hunt him. Verse 1. O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. 
He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. That is amazing that he could write those words at that time of such great fear. He trusted in God so completely, so fully that even in this darkest of night, he was worshiping God, lifting his soul. And even before God delivered him, even before the attack came, David knew that God had delivered him, meaning God promised it. God promised to make him king. He knew that God was his deliverance. And he trusted in the promises of God because they were more certain than the mountains that were around him. So when crushing fear falls upon David, he could still sing out, I give thanks to your name, O Lord, for he has delivered me in my trouble. When at that moment, the trouble had not even come. Very few of us will ever know a fear like David You look at the horizon and you wonder. But I pray that we never live in a time where we will be hunted for our faith and our calling as David was. And even still, we are plagued by fears constantly. Anxiety is growing among Americans. Many fail to obey the Great Commission out of fear. We get this notion in our head, I think, sometimes like, just gird up my loins, muster up my strength, pull myself up by my bootstraps, and charge the machine guns. And our spiritual battlefield is laden with bodies. But perhaps fear is best defeated by worship. Worshiping the God who delivers, who saves, and who rescues, that in your darkest hour you worship. As David writes in Psalm 4:4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And if he is for you, then who can be against you? And he has already triumphed over your enemies, and he hears your every prayer. And these are promises directly from heaven given to you. And so the next time that fears invade your heart or try, remember these promises from God. He will not fail. If you see one of your brothers or sisters in Christ struggling with fear, be like Jonathan. Strengthen them in the Lord. Feed them with the promises of God. And even if night seems to be closing in, All around you, there is no better time to worship. Worship God who loves to bring life where there is death. It's what he does. What have you to fear? Remember these soldiers that followed David. They helped him rescue the oppressed and Kyla, even if they were met with ingratitude and betrayal. Like there was no... Celebration march through the streets of Kyla. They were going to throw him to Saul. But 
But these soldiers didn't hesitate to follow their king, even if it meant persecution and homelessness. And what happened? What happened as they followed? God protected them. God grew their numbers. God eventually expanded the kingdom's domain. And Israel was led into its most glorious age ever. David prefigures Jesus. What happens when we follow our king? God will protect us in Christ. God will grow our numbers. God will expand his kingdom. And glory lies in our future. Follow your king and obey his command and fear no persecution. We have much to learn from David and from his mighty men. I give thanks to you. I give thanks to your name, O Lord God, for it is good on mine enemies. We thank you that this promise is true. That David spoke with the voice of a prophet and Christ brought into creation these words of David forevermore. We thank you, Father, for such a great work in our midst. And I pray that you would help each one of us as we battle with fear and doubt and sin, help each one of us to follow you. Strengthen us. Strengthen our faith. We believe, so help our unbelief. We praise you, Christ, King of all kings and Lord of all lords, and it is in your name that we pray these things. Amen.